Welcome to your path to success with Ruth Kearns Volman. I created this podcast to encourage, inspire, and equip you on your personal path to success as you listen to the stories of others' journeys through the ups and downs of choosing and navigating their path. Today's guest, Rebecca Wardell, is a former New Zealand Olympic heptathlete and currently works at the International Olympic Committee in Lausanne here in Switzerland. Rebecca retired from competitive sport aged 34 and found herself starting her career from scratch with all the soul searching that that implies. In 2018, she decided to quit her job and cycle the 20,000 kilometers home to New Zealand with two friends where she planned to stay and start afresh again. It was a crazy, audacious goal that required courage, resilience, and a can-do attitude. In this interview, you will hear her tell the story of her long way home, as she calls it, including why she set off in the first place, what she learned along the way, and how it led her full circle back to Lausanne and her passion for the Olympic movement. Enjoy the podcast. So here I am with former Olympic heptathlete and extreme cyclist, Rebecca Wardell. Rebecca, it's wonderful to have this opportunity to talk a little bit more about your life and leadership journey. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Ruth. Really looking forward to chatting with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we met back in January um, when you came to speak at uh, BPW Lake Geneva. So that's the Business and Professional Women's Network here. And we're both, you know, you're from New Zealand. I'm from the UK originally. We both have made our home here in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. How did you come to make Lausanne your home? Well, Lausanne is the the capital of the Olympic movement. The headquarters of the International Olympic Committee are are based here. I had been working at the New Zealand Olympic Committee in Auckland, New Zealand for a couple of years following my retirement from being an athlete. And I saw an opportunity to take up a position at the International Olympic Committee that I applied for and was successful to get the position. So I moved to Lausanne at the end of 2014 have been here really ever since. So yeah, I call it home now. It's very similar to New Zealand in terms of the lake and the mountains and the small town. So I feel very much at home here. Yeah. And I also love the lake and the mountains and the outdoors and the opportunities it gives us for a great quality of life. And also, as you said, the headquarters of the International Olympic Committee and the Olympics has been part of your life for quite a long time. And you compete in what I think is one of the most crazy sports, the heptathlon. How did you come to 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 get into heptathlon and at that level? Yeah, so I first became fascinated by the Olympic Games when I was very young, sort of as a seven-year-old watching Los Angeles 1984 on TV back in New Zealand and, and was captivated by that and ha- have been ever since really. I played a variety of different sports at, at school and high school, basketball, volleyball, swimming, a little bit of athletics, but it was the year I left school. So 1996 was the year of the Atlanta Olympic Games. And I remember thinking, right, if I want to actually take this seriously and, and compete at the Olympic Games, I'm going to have to choose a sport and, and really knuckle down and get serious about it. So I chose athletics being an individual sport. And I had sort of slightly more control of my destiny, I guess you could say, rather than being in a, in a basketball team or something like that. 
But I did go through a process over several years and several Olympic cycles of, of trying to find the right event for myself within athletics. Okay. So I started with 200 and 400 metres, missed out on the Sydney 2000 Games, changed to 400 hurdles, missed out on the Athens 2004 Games. And it was in Athens 2004 that I saw, I was actually lucky enough to be a spectator um, cheering on a training partner of mine, and I saw the heptathletes competing. And I knew I had a natural ability in, in throwing. I could hurdle, obviously, could run. Jumping, I thought, well, I can maybe pick this up. But together with my coach, we decided if I wanted to be in Beijing in four years' time in 2008, heptathlon was probably the sport or the discipline, I should say, that would get me there. So went back to New Zealand in late 2004, picked up the heptathlon, and fortunately enough for me, it was the right decision and ended up being competing at Beijing 2008 in, in heptathlon for New Zealand. Yeah, and that is amazing. I mean, I'm not really sporty, but for me to hear you talk about the fact that you clearly had an ability, but it was actually probably quite late compared to some people when you chose your discipline. What did it take for you to, in those four years, get to the level that you needed to be? For me, it was a lot of technical work. I obviously had the strength base from from the years I would be training, my running strength, my, my hurdling strength. I was a natural thrower. I mean, I know this sounds, it's not very nice to say, but throw like a girl is kind of a, a thing. Women are not girls, I should say, are not really, throwing is not, it doesn't come naturally, I guess, and for me, I was lucky that it did. So really, it was just focusing on refining the technical aspects of throwing and learning how to, to do the long jump and high jump. Yeah, it was it was difficult, but I love a technical challenge. I had a really good technical coach. And we just put all the pieces together. In the heptathlon, there's a lot of things that cross over between events, so strength, speed, power. A lot of the movements whilst you're throwing a javelin and a shot put are different. There are some similarities and crossover. So, yeah, I, I just found it a fantastic puzzle. It was It's a great event if you're, if you're into that kind of technical stuff. Yeah, so you had the foundation of, you know, the strength and the speed and the power, and then you, it was the technical puzzle that really – it's almost intellectually stimulating or, you know. Yeah. And I guess as, as an older athlete, as you say, I was I was getting on by then. I was 26 when I picked it up. Um, I guess the kind of more academic side of it was was interesting, having considering I'd already been in the sport for sort of uh, eight years by then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, comes retirement at a relatively young age when you're in sport what was it like to, after competing at that level, to retire? I made a bid for the 2012 Olympics in London. Um, and at the age 34, I knew that was going to be my last Games. 34 years old is very old, I think you could say, for, for a heptathlete. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a very brutal sport on the body. So it, it took its toll. I had many injuries, surgeries, in particular in the lead up to Beijing and, and afterwards. So my doctor encouraged me to retire in 2010, but I insisted that I wanted to have another crack at the Olympic Games. And while I tore a hamstring and, and couldn't qualify for the for the London Games, but by that age I was 34, and most of my peers, my friends, had were already you know 10 years into a, a career because I had an organisation or setting up their own businesses, etc. And I, whilst I'd been studying throughout my athletic career, I hadn't really worked full-time and, and established myself in that kind of career path so it was really hard to kind of start at the start at the bottom I guess you could say and also to sort of try and understand your identity outside of being an athlete um, I mean, that's how I identified myself for 
the past sort of 14, 15 years and all of a sudden you're you're not an athlete anymore, you're an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, this kind of thing. So it was it was really trying to reframe and, and let go of that part of my life, which I struggled with and it's 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 very normal for for a lot of athletes to, to struggle with the transition away from being an athlete in, t- in particular in terms of identity. Yeah, and I think a lot of people struggle with that when they make a career change partway into their career because we identify with, you know, something we've studied or who we've become. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that we might have to, this concept of starting over. And I think maybe, I don't know if in your case there was something else, which was, you know, competing in the Olympics was a childhood dream. That you yeah. kind of achieved your dream and, you know, can there be anything else after achieving <laughs> your dream? Yeah. How was that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. And I, and I guess that's why I kind of, well, I fell into a role at the New Zealand Olympic Committee by chance because I had been studying engineering and that was going to be my sort of my career path. But I guess in accepting a job with the New Zealand Olympic Committee, I could kind of continue to live that dream a little bit. Right. I could kind of hold on to that childhood great dream just a little bit longer by being involved in the games, obviously, from a, from a completely different angle, but still being involved in it as a whole. Uh, and I guess that's why I am still now, uh, 20 years later, sitting here at the International Olympic Committee, still still part of that um, that childhood yeah. dream. Yeah. And in a way, I don't know, I don't know if this is how you see it, but you're keeping that dream alive for others, you know, allowing <laughs> others to to live that dream in the in the Olympic spirit. Yeah, exactly. Fundamentally, that's I guess that's why I'm still working in the movement is because it, it was such a big part of my life and and who I am and life lessons that, you know, to be able to give other athletes the same and, and just fans, spectators to be able to experience the games as well. Yeah. And so sport is still very much part of your life. And I think, you know, in around 2018, you were considering going back home, right? And then you came up with this crazy idea of cycling back home. (laughs) Where did that come from? Um, So in retirement, I kind of was looking around for different sports to kind of, you know, keep me going. And in and, and my move to Switzerland, I, I took up road cycling. Um, it's a, a big part of the culture here in Switzerland. There's a lot of cyclists and um, it was a great kind of social way to to meet people and do adventures and, and get some exercise at the same time. Obviously, some beautiful rides around in the in the Swiss countryside. And I had a couple of Kiwi friends, for girls from New Zealand, who were working with me at the International Olympic Committee who we used to ride together on the weekend one of whom is a olympic rower in the twig and another um she was actually a rower as well not not at the olympic level but high level uh sarah van balakom and i can't pinpoint exactly how it started but we started to discuss the idea of cycling back to new zealand on one of these rides one day and somehow it just sort of snowballed i think we all kind of egged each other on the more we egged each other on the more it kind of took shape and we were just discussing details and and for me, it was kind of a, you only get this chance once in a lifetime where you've got two friends who you trust enough to do something like this with. And when you have the, the financial means, the freedom and the, the ability to do a, a project like this, that we we all three of us decided to quit our jobs and take off on the bike. Yeah, so it was jumping off the deep end, I guess, but it's, as I said, once in a lifetime opportunity and, and something that's been fantastic to, to experience. Yeah, and it was... But in terms of the goal behind that, so it was a great adventure, but it was 
a lot more to you than just cycling a very long way, you know, ridiculously long way. <laughs> there were other goals that you had. Can you just share a little bit about what, what yeah. you put in place in terms of your goals? I mean, it started off as as the, the bike ride, but the three of us really wanted to make it about something more than just us having a good time, having an adventure. And we decided it was a unique opportunity to using Emma's profile as an Olympic athlete and my own, our connections at the International Olympic Committee to really make something of the journey from a social aspect. So we used the network of national Olympic committees in each country of uh, each of the countries we rode through to um, connect with them to make connections with local schools so to visit as many school children as we could along the way to share our journey connect with local olympians in each of those countries so we bring the local olympian along to the school with us so there was a bit of a local connection it was great to meet other olympians understand their training their their story every olympian's got an, an interesting story so yes, that was really amazing and, and it culminated with around 40 visits in, in New Zealand alone, um, uh, which for me was really special because you could cycle into a school and, and you know, tell these kids that I'd grown up just like them, you know, there was no reason they couldn't be dreaming big and doing something something crazy like this. The school visits was one element, the, the connecting with the local Olympians. And then we also decided it was a great opportunity to raise some awareness for a, a local charity back in New Zealand. So we chose a, a very small charity based in, in Christchurch, which was the town that Sarah and myself went to university and school. And the charity aims to basically empower young women through sport. So learning life lessons, building confidence getting teenage girls active and, and moving and it's actually a charity that I'm still involved with now I'm on their on their board of directors so it's great to to still be involved and we set a target of one dollar per kilometer and ended up surpassing that so we raised around twenty seven thousand um, New Zealand dollars I think so yeah, yeah those were the three kind of social aspects to the ride and it, it really it was great it gave us some sort of frameworks some little projects along the way connection points and and really added some some great color to the journey. And I think having heard you tell your story also gave you a reason to keep going when things got tough, right? Because it wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the biggest challenges you met along the way? I mean, the biggest challenges were probably the environment itself. So winter in China, we're talking about snow, freezing temperatures, slippery icy roads, headwinds, which were seemed to be the nemesis on many occasions, rain, mud. So literally pushing our bikes through mud when, when we couldn't cycle. Um, finding places to stay was uh, often difficult in some places, some of the more remote places. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was things that in your daily life normally, so here in, in Switzerland in my daily life, you don't think about, you know, where am I, where am I sleeping tonight? What am I eating? And, and how am I moving from A to B? Am I going to get lost? I mean, those are things you just you know, you know how to get home, where the supermarket is, and you've got a warm bed to go to at night. But I guess it's those three core things that drove us every day to to keep to keep going. Yeah, back to the basics in a way, isn't it? Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, food, shelter, safety. And I think you even had an injury along the way, didn't you, that nearly... Yeah, Ruth, I mean, we, had a, we were very lucky in that we only had one sort of major accident, um, and that was in the Iran, uh, slippery, rainy road, and Sarah, who was riding in front of me, um, went up on the curb and actually crashed, and I was directly behind her, and so rode into the back of her, and we ended up in a big muddy puddle on the side of the road in, in Iran, um, just, just out of Tehran, and yeah, ended up 
in hospital, me with a hole in my knee, ended up having four stitches. Sarah sprained her knee and her ankle and ended up having to have some physio. We had we had two weeks off the bike trying to recover and mm. there before we were able to to move again with the pressure of knowing that our Iranian visa was running out, the state assigned guide that we'd booked in Turkmenistan, the next country, you know, they were expecting us, hoping hoping that we would be able to be physically fit to be able to get back on the bike. Luckily all these things worked out. Yeah. Um, and thanks also to some incredibly kind strangers in Iran who picked us up off the side of the road, paid for some of our medical bills, had us to stay, took us to physio appointments, just all purely out of the kindness of their own hearts. So we were incredibly well looked after by some very generous people. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience at the same time being quite scary. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, in a place where you 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 don't know it at all, and your visa's running out, and it's maybe not even safe. And yeah, I think that was one of the things I remember you saying was one of the really positive things that you learned from the from the whole thing was the kindness of strangers. To me, that was probably the one key takeaway that that really blew me away, and I never really thought about it before I left. But we relied on strangers the whole way through the journey, whether it be directions, sleeping on someone's floor, um, finding something to eat, picking us up off the side of the road when we were injured. It was just incredible how people would so readily come to your aid. And especially in the countries that were some of the poorest, like Tajikistan, which is probably one of the poorest countries we rode through, these people were the ones who were running out of their their houses and off the fields where they were working to, to invite us into their homes, laying out literally every piece of food that they had in the house, insisting that we stayed the night. Yeah, I mean, this was just outstanding and, and, and incredible and, and just gave us such a, a sense of being welcomed and looked after. Um, and it was interesting too because this was a much more present in the sort of eastern part of the journey, so through Asia, from Turkey through to, to sort of China, whereas I didn't really get that same sense in, in my own country in New Zealand. I think it's more of a kind of Western mentality where the, you know, the door's shut and don't talk to strangers and, and this kind of thing. So that was really an eye-opener for me as well. Yeah. What was the highlight for you? I mean, the ultimate highlight was arriving at home in one piece after... <laughs> 20,000 kilometres in 355 days was definitely a highlight. There were a couple of other highlights. Obviously, getting to Singapore was a big a big deal because that was the kind of furthest east and south you could ride on a bike without having to get on a plane or a boat. So that was a massive sense of achievement. But for me, it was experiencing those people in, in countries like Tajikistan, which was probably the fact my favourite country that I rode through. Like, you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, Afghan- we cycled along the Afghanistan border, um, seeing this most incredible scenery and just having this feeling of being so isolated and in, in a place that not many Westerners ever visit, but then feeling so welcomed and, and being able to enjoy the experience as a result. Mm. It feels like a privilege, doesn't it, to have Absolutely, yep. that Absolutely. connection with people who... Yep. Not many people get to meet them. Oh, and I think that's where the bike ride was really special in, in terms of a mode of transport that I think that it enables that connection with people. Like you're moving at a pace where people can stop and talk to you. Um, whereas if you're in, you're, in a, you're in a bus or a car, you're not having that same interaction. Yeah. Um, I think you're less threatening too on a bike opposed to a motorbike or again, a bus or a car. You're kind of, you're 
at one with nature sounds silly, but you're more present in the in the local environment. And I think yeah. we, we we really reap the benefits of that. Yeah, it's slow enough to be present and to really experience the, yeah. the journey. Yeah, yeah. So, how would you say that that this trip changed you? It's an interesting question. It's it's made me way more open to accepting help from other people. I think I was always a very stubborn kind of independent woman who I could do everything on my own and I don't need your help. And whereas along the journey, we we relied on people to help us, as I said before, give directions, find places to stay, find places to eat. And I think accepting people's kindness, accepting their offers of help, I had to put my guard down. But at the same time, I realized that it gave them a lot of joy to be able to help. And I think we all know that, you know, if you help someone, it, it feels good inside, right? And I think I kind of understood. I was like, ah, you know, maybe it's okay every now and then to to be a little vulnerable and, and let yourself down and, and not be this kind of independent, strong woman all the time. You know, it gives people the opportunity to help you and, and you have that really nice connection. So, yeah, I think I've become a little softer in that, in that aspect, which is, which is really nice. Mm. And I seem to recall you also changed your mind because your intention was to stay in New Zealand <laughs> how did that come about yeah so I mean as I said we all all three of us quit our jobs at the IOC um my intention was always to ride the whole way Emma Twig agreed that she would ride with us to, to Istanbul and Turkey and then began her campaign to compete at the Tokyo 2020 Games where she won gold in the in the single scales and rowing, which was a, yeah. which was a re- real treat. We all say that it was because of the, the first six weeks on the bike that gave her the edge. Yeah, and Sarah agreed to ride with me through to to China the first six months. But yeah, it was always my intention to do the whole journey and then go back to New Zealand and live in New Zealand and find a job. But it was it was through the bike trip, through the experiences with the Olympians that we met along the way, through the experiences of, of speaking with children about. The Olympic Games, us as as people, just really seeing how the the Olympic movement itself is a it's something people understand. It's something positive. It brings a lot of it sparks a lot of joy in a lot of people. I was kind of like, why why have I quit my job in in working being able to work in that space? So yeah, it was probably about six months through the journey. I was like, actually, you know what? I'm I think I'm going to try and go back as a finish the journey and then and then look to be able to start a, start a, a role again at the IOC, which I was just purely by chance able to get another position not mm. not long after the, the bike ride had finished. But yeah, it was just really that I kind of found again my love for the Olympic movement through the experiences on the, on the bike trip. Mm. Yeah, it sounds really like it was the experience of the trip and but also the interaction with the the children at the schools the olympians it consolidated for you what your passion and purpose was and what was really important to you yeah exactly because i think prior to that i kind of got a bit bogged down in the kind of the politics and the work of the job and you know the, the daily grind and sort of forgot a little bit of i kind of lost the magic a little bit of, of the games itself um, mm. um so it was really nice to to find that again so as you look back because it's nearly five years since you started the trip, right? Mm-hmm. What life lessons have you learned that have continued to serve you and you'd love other people to to know about? I guess essentially in a trip like this, perseverance, resilience, just keep going, all of these kind of elements. There were many times when I was like, I want to stop, I want to give up. 
you know, what am I doing? This is crazy. But just just having that that real uh, perseverance, the ability to, you know, just have the mindset of okay, just a few more pedal strokes, one more day, another day here, just those short term goals, ticking them off. Like okay, the next five kilometers, okay, twenty kilometers till lunch. Just having those little short term goals and and keeping ticking them off. Eventually, you achieve your your long term goal of of getting home by bike. And that's something you know in your daily everyone in their daily life can 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 work on. You know, if you have a big audacious goal, if you focus purely on that, you're going to get disheartened and 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 want to stop. But it, there's the little chunks that you can keep chipping away at that you feel like you're achieving, and, and eventually, before you know, it, you're you're at the goal you've set. So I think yeah, that kind of perseverance, that that resilience of just trying to put the bad moments behind you and keep going are kind of things that I think I transferred from my athletic life into the bike trip and the bike trip kind of just really, really solidified it um, for me. And it's something that I've, I've brought through into my daily life now. Mm. Yeah, I love that balance, isn't it? Between keeping going, not getting so terrified by the goal, but just like, what am I going to do today? But remember, that's where you're pointing, like not losing sight of it either, of the yeah. reason why you started. Yeah. And I think also for me, it was to try something new. I mean, the first day we left Switzerland on the bikes, the fully loaded touring bikes was the first day I'd ever ridden a, a touring bike with four bags on it. I mean, it was the same for Emma and Sarah. The, the three of us literally had really no idea apart from having read a, a couple of books and a couple of blogs and spoken to a couple of people who'd done some similar tours. It was just, I don't know if it was confidence was the right word, but just the attitude that, hey, let's have a go. You know, I mean, worst comes to worst, we get to Croatia and the whole thing's turned to custard and we have to stop, but at least we tried, right? Mm. And I think that was my philosophy too as an athlete, as I said before, in terms of trying to, to qualify for London 2012. Now I'm when I look back, I'm, I'm proud that I tried, whereas it would have been quite easy after Beijing 2008 to go, okay, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. So it's it's just having a crack. Things may not work out, but I think you learn a lot from from the journey and the experience, regardless of the outcome. Yeah, and the last thing that I I hear it again in the way you're speaking, but it really struck me when I heard you speak earlier this year was just the power of the support network. Mm. You know, being yep. there with your two friends, knowing that the people back home were supporting you. And the strangers, yeah. It's the power of like humankind to support one another and to really lean into one another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I would never have done this cycle trip without Emma and Sarah kicking off with me. And then all the people who joined along the way, my parents, a few other friends came came along as well. Yeah, the, the massive community we had online of people, you know, we'd do a daily post and we had so many words of encouragement and support and people making donations and then, yeah, lastly, the, every person who we met along the way who would pass us a bottle of water or let us stay on their floor. I think it's a huge community of, of people who helped us achieve it. I mean, people are often like, oh, my God, what you did so amazing and good on you. And I'm like, yeah, but it took an army, right, of, of people who were pushing us along the way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I'd love just to ask you one last question. What's the next adventure for you? <laughs> 
Um, it's a question I get often asked. I would love to do some, as I said earlier, the bike is an incredible way to travel, meet people. I'd love to do some smaller journeys. People, have, a lot of cycle tourists we met said that Georgia is amazing. Sarah and I have talked about doing the Karakoram Highway, which is the highway that runs from the Chinese border down into Pakistan, just to do some little cycle journeys like that. I won't be quitting my job anytime soon to do a, another <laughs> mammoth mammoth journey. But yeah, now for now, it's just uh, enjoying being in one place, knowing I've got a warm shower and a warm bed and a, and a fridge with food in it, things that I now don't take for granted. But yeah, it's it's just consolidating my home life and maybe planning for the odd little cycle tour here or there in the future. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're going to do something because it seems like cracking on and trying something new <laughs> is part of flows through your blood. So yeah. I look forward to hearing about it. <laughs> Thank, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. And I will make sure so that we share the link to the little video you have of your journey, the story of your journey. Yeah, so perfect. People, if they want to hear a bit more about your adventures, they can they can find out. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Ruth. It was great to chat. Thank you. I found so much inspiration in Rebecca's journey. I have to be honest, the first time I met Rebecca, I was worried that she would be too extreme and that I could never be like her and was worried I couldn't relate. And yet there's so much learning there which can be reapplied to my circumstances and I guess yours as well, even though they're very different perhaps. I wonder which ones are most relevant to where you find yourself now. Maybe it's the power of setting an audacious and inspiring goal and setting off without fully knowing how to get there but knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are and being willing to take the leap and adapt and learn along the way. Perhaps it's the tip of knowing the reason why you started in the first place and keeping that purpose in sight. But when things get tough, just looking at the next milestone ahead, the next day, the next 20 kilometres to lunch and so on. Or perhaps it's the power of human connection, human kindness and human networks. Whether it was the friends that got her started and kept her going along the way, the kindness of strangers or the network of Olympic athletes and schools around the world, Rebecca was not alone. So wherever you are on your journey, we all need motivating goals. We all need to know the strengths and weaknesses that we start with. And we all need a network of resources and support to keep us going through the ups and downs of growth. I want to encourage you to notice which of these three areas is the one that needs some more clarity or reinforcement for you. And to take inspiration from Rebecca that you are capable of more than you think, but that none of us can go it alone. If you'd like to find out more about my coaching and facilitation work, you can find my website at yourpathtosuccess.ch and use the connect button to send me an email. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to hear more inspiring stories. And in the meantime, keep going and keep growing on your own path to success. <laughs>